One of the sad experiences most of us in this room have had is watching a friend or family member or loved one experience memory loss as a result of age or physical digression of some kind. It happens when a person has dementia. It happens when a person has Alzheimer's. It can happen when a person is in an accident. There can be any number of causes, but regardless of the reason, it is heartbreaking to watch someone we love go down that path. As many of you know, it can get so bad that the other person doesn't even know who you are, or who he is, or who she is. The sense of loss we feel, especially if it is someone very close to us, is indescribable. When it gets really bad, we feel like we have basically lost the relationship, but yet the person is still with us. In some ways, it's harder to take than losing the person to death. When we lose someone in death, there can eventually be some kind of closure, even though the void is still with us. But when we lose someone to memory loss, it's more difficult to know how to bring closure because the person is still with us. I'm sure that some of you are walking through that painful journey right now, and it's tragic. Without meaning to minimize the pain and difficulty of what you are going through, I think it is accurate to say that there is another kind of experience involving memory loss that is just as painful, and maybe even more painful to observe, in other people. It is when a friend or family member or loved one experiences spiritual memory loss. That is also extremely painful to watch. Spiritual memory loss is when a person fails to grow like he or she ought to grow spiritually, and he digresses to the point that he actually forgets what the Lord did for him in salvation. Spiritual memory loss is when a person goes from being able to see things clearly from a spiritual point of view to a condition of spiritual blindness. Such a person can even get to the point where he forgets that he was cleansed from his old sins. Is that really possible? Can a person actually get to the point that he forgets that he has been cleansed from his past sins? The Apostle Peter said it is possible in the text to which we come this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. Over, the end, over near the end of our New Testaments is the little letter of 2 Peter chapter 1, and please follow along as I read verses 3 through 9, though our focus will be verses 8 and 9, since we've already covered verses 3 through 7. 2 Peter 1, verse 3, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, 
that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. As we have seen in the first three messages of this series, the Apostle Peter wrote this letter as a warning. A warning to believers in the body of Christ. He warns about false teachers and the potential those false teachers have to do two things. Number one, false teachers can influence unbelievers away from the truth and toward a Christless eternity. And number two, false teachers can influence believers away from the truth and toward a life of stagnant spiritual growth. Peter was concerned that neither happened. He didn't want either to happen. That's why he wrote this letter. Here in chapter 1, his primary focus is on believers and the importance of staying strong in the truth for the purpose of spiritual growth. That's what we see in the verses we just read. Peter tells us in verses 3 and 4 that the Lord has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is, the Lord has given us everything we need to be able to live a fruitful, godly life. He has given us a transformation within called the new birth. He has given us the resident Holy Spirit to strengthen us and empower us. He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. He has given us deliverance from the corruption that is in the world. So we have all we need to live a life of godliness, and based on that, Peter exhorts us to move forward in growth in our Christian lives. That is the focus of verses 5 through 7. There in those verses, Peter lists seven qualities, seven character traits that we need to develop in our lives. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. These qualities are to be in our lives in abundance. That's the exhortation of verses 5 through 7, which we looked at last Lord's Day. Coming off of that exhortation, Peter explains their importance, the importance of these qualities in verses 8 and 9, which will be our text this morning. He explains the importance of spiritual growth from a positive and a negative standpoint. He basically says this, Spiritual growth is important so we won't be useless. That's verse 8. And spiritual growth is important so we don't become spiritually blind. 
That's verse 9. Peter was passionate about spiritual growth. He was passionate about it in his own life, and he was passionate about it for others. You know, it is not uncommon to hear people, usually preachers, poke fun at Peter for all his mistakes as a disciple, all of his missteps and all the things he did wrong. And he did plenty. But one thing you can say about Peter is that he never stopped learning and growing and maturing. He became a solid man of God. He was passionate about spiritual growth in his own life, and he was passionate about it for others. I find it fascinating that the very last verse of this letter is the exhortation, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow, says Peter, as he signs off his final letter. Grow. That was the hallmark of Peter's life and ministry. In fact, back in verse 5, when he exhorts us to spiritual growth, he says, applying all diligence or make every effort. Those are intense phrases. And they convey the zeal in Peter's heart to see Christians grow spiritually. He understood that there are ramifications to this issue. There are positive ramifications in a Christian's life when he or she does grow, and there are negative ramifications when there is not spiritual growth. Verse 8 mentions the positive, and verse 9 mentions the negative. Notice what Peter says in verse 8. He begins with the word for, which lets us know he's explaining further or giving more information. He says, for, if these things are yours and abound... You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The things or qualities mentioned here in this verse are the character traits that Peter listed back in verses 5 through 7. We are to add to our faith, verse 5 says. We are to supplement our faith with virtue, goodness, or moral excellence, depending on your translation. That word describes someone who excels in life, in his or her character. It describes someone who stands out, someone who is unique. We should be known for virtue or moral excellence. The second characteristic that Peter mentions is knowledge. So knowledge is something we need to add to our virtue. Knowledge of God, deeper knowledge of Christ, more thorough knowledge of the Word of God. Knowledge is something we need to add to our virtue. The third quality mentioned is self-control. That is a fundamental aspect of the Christian life. We can't just go along with whatever we feel like doing or don't feel like doing in life. Self-control is key. A key component or aspect of the Christian life. The fourth character trait Peter mentions is perseverance. That is patient endurance or steadfastness. We can't throw up our hands and quit when things get tough in life. We have to hang in there. We have to be faithful with patient endurance. The fifth character trait listed is godliness. A godly person is someone who seeks to please God 
in every facet of his life, in every component, every dimension of his life, every phase of life. The sixth quality is brotherly kindness. That describes a relational kindness toward one another. It describes a heart of affection and a willingness to sacrifice for one another in the family of God. Then the final character trait listed is love. Love is the pinnacle. Love is the summit. It is the superlative. These are the seven qualities Peter is referring to here in verse 8 when he says, If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective. The New King James Version has the word barren in this verse. And most of the other English translations have the word ineffective or useless. Obviously, that is not what we want to be as Christians. We don't want to be barren. We don't want to be ineffective. We don't want to be useless. Now think about this in the following manner. Why why would Peter say this? Why would he be concerned about us as Christians being ineffective or useless or barren? Think about it this way. From Satan's point of view, he doesn't want anyone to become a Christian. But if someone does become a Christian, Satan wants to do everything he can to make sure that Christian is useless or ineffective. Satan hates to see Christians whose lives are useful to the Lord and effective at touching other people's lives for the Lord. You see, beloved, the tragedy of so many Christians isn't that they live terribly immoral lives. It's that they live insignificant lives. If they died, there would be no one who missed them, spiritually speaking, because they don't touch other people for the Lord. They make no impact in anyone else's life. One of the most disappointing things for me to hear as a pastor, to hear from other people in our community, is when they say about someone in our church, he's a Christian? I didn't know he was a Christian. Unfortunately, I hear that periodically from believers or unbelievers in the community. And listen, it's not always because the Christian person in view is living a vile life. Understand that. He may be a nice person or a kind person, but his life doesn't show forth a distinctly Christian witness or testimony. People around him don't even know he's a Christian because even though there's nothing wicked in his life, there is nothing that demonstrates that he is a committed follower of Jesus Christ. There's no excelling growth. And as a result, the person is ineffective. That's what Peter is warning about here in verse 8. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. The second word that Peter uses, translated unfruitful or unproductive, depending on your translation, This word reminds us of Jesus' teaching in John 15. In fact, it's possible that Peter was remembering those words of Jesus as he penned this part of his letter. Back up with me to John 15 for just a moment to see the background to what Peter writes here. 
The fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth gospel record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 15. As we come to this chapter, it's important that we remember the context and the setting. Jesus is preparing his men for his departure. He's leaving soon. He's also preparing them for their ministry ahead once he leaves. And one of the most important things to understand about life and ministry is the concept that Jesus teaches here in John 15. He says to them in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Here in verse 1, we have another one of the famous I am passages that are a trademark in John's gospel. For example, in John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In John 8.12, he said, I am the light of the world. In John 8.24 and 8.58, he said, I am. In John 10.9, he said, I am the door. In John 10.14, he said, I am the good shepherd. In John 11.25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14.6, he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And here in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. The word true has the idea of heavenly or eternal or divine. Jesus is the true vine. Formerly, God poured his life through Israel. Formerly, connection with Israel brought blessing. Psalm 80, Ezekiel 19, Jeremiah 2, Hosea 10, all speak of Israel as a vine. But as Jesus speaks these words here, that has all changed. He is the vine. Isaiah 5 says Israel forfeited their right to be the vine because they didn't bring forth any fruit. Israel forfeited their right to be the vine because they brought forth wild grapes instead of good fruit. So here in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. He is the source of life. He is the source of fruit. He is the source of living a fruitful life. And Jesus tells us here in verse 1 that the Father is the vine dresser, or maybe your translation says husbandman. That tells us that the role of the Father is to do whatever is necessary in our lives to cause us to draw from the Son the source of our lives. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word abide is obviously the key concept of these verses here in John 15 because that word is used ten times in the first 11 verses of this chapter. Abide, 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 abide. It's just repeated for emphasis. Jesus is calling his disciples to continue to progress spiritually. The disciples were abiding when Jesus said this, but they needed to remain there, stay there, fix there to grow stronger. Because then and only then would they bear fruit. A branch 
and you know this, this is an obvious. A branch has no capability whatsoever to produce even the minutest amount of fruit. It must remain and grow strong in its relationship to the vine. And Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Notice the progression of thought that Jesus makes through these verses. At the beginning of verse 2, he talks about fruit. At the end of verse 2, he talks about more fruit. And now here in verse 5, he is encouraging much fruit. But be careful. Be careful not to get sidetracked into concentrating on fruit and miss the point of this passage. The point that Jesus is making is that He is the source of fruitfulness. He is it. It's not our methods, our working, our striving, our commitment that produces fruit. It's His life through us. As one man put it, quote, God's method is not that Christ helps you bring forth fruit any more than the vine helps the branch. It's not even that Christ works and you help Him all you can. Only those who have learned the lesson of the utter hopelessness of the branch can fully appreciate this wonderful truth, end quote. You say, say, but Brian, shouldn't I be concerned about doing something to produce fruit? No, no. It is not fruit that you and I need to concentrate on. It's life, life, life with the Savior The purpose of Bible study, scripture memory, prayers, whatever spiritual disciplines, the purpose is not to produce fruit, but to cultivate life. And when the life of the Lord Jesus is flowing through us, pulsing through us, then he will bear fruit through us. Now why is this so important to Jesus? Why does he take his final night, just a few hours before his arrest, And then all of the events that follow leading up to his crucifixion. Why does he take his final night to drive this home to his disciples? Why is this so important? Verse 8 tells us, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. That's why this is so important to Jesus. And because this was important to Jesus, rightly so, it was important to Peter. Peter heard these words on this night. He was right there as Jesus spoke these words. And these words stuck in Peter's heart and mind. He never forgot them, which is why 35 years later, he said when he wrote his final letter, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Now back to that text in 2 Peter chapter 1. So Peter exhorts us to spiritual growth in our relationship with the Lord Jesus so we can be effective so we can be fruitful. That's what he says in 2 Peter 1.8. And then he adds to close off that verse, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This could be translated into a deeper knowledge 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Peter wanted for his readers. He wanted their relationship to grow in a deeper communion, in a deeper intimacy and fellowship with Christ. So that's the positive motivation for spiritual growth. There it is, verse 8. That's the positive incentive. Verse 9 turns the coin over and gives the negative motivation or the negative warning. Verse 9 says this, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now what is Peter saying here? We need to be very careful about how we take this verse and apply this verse to people in our lives. What I mean is, it is very easy for us, and understandably so, to want to believe or convince ourselves that all of our loved ones who have shown any interest in the gospel at any time are saved and going to heaven. As I say, this is understandable. We love our friends and family members and co-workers, classmates, teammates. Therefore, we want to believe they are saved if they have ever given any indication of a positive response to the gospel. If they have ever attended church for a while, or if they went to Sunday school as a child, or if they went to an evangelistic campaign, or if they ever said a prayer, it's easy for us to convince ourselves that they are saved. It is, it is extremely difficult for us to be objective and unemotional and realistic regarding their true spiritual condition. Now, we're not the judge anyway, but it's just that we would like the assurance, understandably, that our loved ones are going to heaven. So it's easy to talk ourselves into believing that they are saved, but they've just fallen away from the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that true Christians can't fall away from the Lord, because that's certainly a possibility from a biblical point of view. It's certainly a possibility. But when we convince ourselves that our 20, 30, 40, or 50-year-old loved one is a Christian because he said a prayer when he was five but hasn't shown any interest in the Lord ever since, we aren't being very objective about the situation. That is not the kind of scenario Peter is describing in this verse. That, that is not the kind of scenario that Peter has in mind. He has in mind someone who has truly come to know the Lord and has experienced a 2 Corinthians 5.17 change. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is a description of genuine salvation. So Peter is describing someone who has truly come to know the Lord and experienced a genuine heart change in life. However, however, this person allows something to sidetrack him or her away from pursuing a life of spiritual growth in Christ. Maybe it's as simple as the fact that life gets too busy for this person. Or maybe it's something like John warned us about in 1 John 2.15 which says, do not love the world or the things in the world. So maybe this person has fallen in love with the world. 
Or maybe it's something like Paul warned us about in Romans 12 too, which says, do not be conformed to this world. Maybe this is a, the person who has allowed this world to squeeze him or her into its mold. Whatever it is, the person that Peter has in mind here is the Christian who doesn't take seriously the exhortation in verse 5 to be very diligent about growing in spiritual character, growing in relationship with Christ. And here is the warning. If such a person continues long enough in that kind of spiritual condition, he can get to the point where he is spiritually blind and can actually experience spiritual memory loss. He can forget that he was cleansed from his old sins. You say, explain that some more. What what does that look like? I don't know. All I know is what Peter says here. He says that it's possible for a genuine Christian to forget that he was cleansed from his old sins. Because of what Peter says in the next verse about making your call and election sure which, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. Because of that verse, it is possible that Peter is talking about a Christian getting to the point where he lives in doubt and fear regarding his or her salvation. That certainly happens with some Christians. It, it actually, it happens with lots of Christians. Many Christians have experienced that. I'm sure many in this room have gone through that, wondering, having doubts about your salvation. Frankly, I've lost track of the number of Christians who have talked with me through the years because they were struggling with a lack of assurance of salvation. That is not an uncommon scenario in ministry and in shepherding people. And what I've seen is that those who grow in their walk with Christ by adding virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love— Those who grow in their walk with Christ see those doubts slowly dissipate. Now, it's not that we earn our salvation. Please don't misunderstand. It's not even that we earn the assurance of our salvation by growing in Christ. But when we do grow in Christ, it gives us assurance of His presence in our lives. We see His presence more and more, which removes the doubts, wondering... Do I really belong to Christ? Is He really in my life? So it makes sense that a Christian who does not grow in Christ could lack the assurance and actually forget that he was cleansed from his old sins. But listen, that may not be all Peter is saying. If that's all he was saying, he didn't need to state verse 9. He could have just stated verses 10 and 11. So he may be saying even more than that. He may be saying that it is possible for a genuine child of God to digress to the point where he or she completely forgets about what the Lord has done in his life in salvation. An example I think of from Scripture is Lot, Abraham's nephew. In verse 7 of the next chapter, Peter refers to Lot as a righteous man. Lot was righteous positionally before God. But if you would have looked at Lot, 
you probably would not have considered him righteous. If you had gone to visit Lot down in the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah, you would not have seen him as righteous in all likelihood. Let me give you a couple of examples. He offered his virgin daughters to the men who were trying to rape the angels who had come to visit him. He got drunk on consecutive nights and was involved in incest with both of his daughters. Those aren't righteous actions. But according to chapter 2, verse 7, Lot was righteous. Watch this. He was righteous in his position and standing before God. Beloved, this is where it is so important that we understand the biblical distinction between standing and state, or position and practice, whichever terms you prefer. Standing and state, position and practice. As children of God, we have a legal standing before God. We have a legal position before God. That is based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to us at the moment of justification. We can do nothing one way or the other about that. What I mean is, we can't increase it and we can't decrease it. Nothing you and I ever do can increase our righteous standing before God, and nothing you and I do can ever decrease that righteous standing before God. It is based on the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect. Our standing, our position before God is based on His forgiveness and Christ's righteousness, so it's perfect. However, in addition to our standing before God, in addition to our position before God, there is also our state or practice. Our standing is perfect, but our state is anything but perfect. To say it another way, our position before God is perfect, but our practice, and you know this well, is anything but perfect. Our practice ought to closely mirror our position in righteousness. The two ought to be very similar, but we often fail and we fall short. Our state ought to closely mirror our standing in righteousness, but we don't often maintain the kind of righteousness we should manifest and display in our lives. It's critically important. You you will get so mixed up in your study of Scripture if you don't grasp this. It is critically important that we understand the distinction between these two aspects of our lives, standing and state, or as it is sometimes called, position and practice. Now I say all that to say this about Lot. Lot was righteous in his standing before God. He had, he had placed genuine faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator of this world. And he, just like Abraham, Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was accredited to him for righteousness. Lot was righteous in his standing before God. He was righteous in his position. But his choices, his choices caused him to digress to the point that he didn't even look like a child of God. And it is possible that he forgot, to borrow Peter's phrase from verse 9 here, that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's what Peter is warning about here in verse 9. It is possible for a genuine Christian to get spiritual amnesia. 
If you don't grow in your walk with Christ, if you don't progress in your walk with Christ, if you don't move forward in your walk with Christ, if you make choices that take you the wrong direction spiritually, you can get to the point where you are spiritually blind, Peter says. Not merely short-sighted. He says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted. And that's not strong enough for Peter. He says, even to blindness. Short-sighted, yeah, not only short-sighted, blind. Totally blind. So if you and I don't grow in our walk with Christ, if we make choices that take us the wrong direction spiritually, we can get to the point where we are spiritually blind. What a sad state for a child of God. Peter did not want that for his readers. And Peter, or maybe I should say the Holy Spirit through Peter, the Holy Spirit who guided Peter to write these words and preserve them, the Holy Spirit doesn't want this for our lives either. He wants us to grow, to move forward, to progress, to be effective, to be fruitful. So in light of what we have seen this morning, honestly ask yourself this question. Now, we're not done, so don't don't tune me out here. Ask yourself this question. How seriously do you take spiritual growth? Is it a priority for you? Do you apply yourself to the task in some way? Or do you just hope it happens? Wish for it to happen? Can can you honestly say you are doing what Peter says in verse 5 when he says we should give all diligence? We should make every effort. If you have to admit that spiritual growth has not been a priority for you, then let me ask you another question, just as important. What are you going to do about it? What, What are you going to do about it? You see, it doesn't do any good to leave here feeling guilty and defeated. That's not a good response to say, oh, spiritual growth has really, I have to to admit, it's not really been a priority in my life as a Christian, so I'm just terrible. I'm just going to go home and mope. That's not the right response. It doesn't do any good to leave here feeling guilty and defeated. Resolve that you're going to take action. Resolve that you're going to do something. Resolve that you're going to make changes. Determine that you are going to do something about it. Something very practical. And there are myriads of practical ways you can do something about it. Get into a Bible study that feeds you and challenges you. Or connect with another Christian friend to do scripture memory together. Or use your driving time to listen to scripture on CD. Or to listen to sermons on CD. If there was ever a day and age... Beloved, if there was ever a day and age that was easier, not easy, but easier for a child of God to take practical steps in growth, it's our day and age. There are no excuses today. There's so much available. So much. I mean, think about it. Some Christians back in the first century didn't even have copies of the Scripture because they weren't available to them. Their only source of growth was to go to the synagogue or to the church and hear someone read it. And then they had to remember it all week, trying to remember what it said. You and I have Bibles. 
We have access to sermons on CD and scripture reading on CD. So get a realistic, doable plan. Instead of just moping around in guilt and defeat and saying, what a terrible Christian I am. Get a realistic, doable plan and make spiritual growth a priority in your life. Don't let yourself get to the point where you have spiritual amnesia. Because that is a real possibility for any one of us. Let's bow together as we close. So as we bow together in closing, I just pose those two questions to you once again. Is spiritual growth a priority in your life? And if you can say yes by God's grace, then be thankful to the Lord for his grace and his work in your heart to that end. But if in honesty you say, no, it really hasn't been a priority, then question number two, what are you going to do about it? What steps will you take? Instead of just moping and defeat and discouragement, what are you going to do to make sure that spiritual growth is a priority? And in closing, I would say this. If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, you, you can't grow spiritually. You can't. No matter how hard you would try, the starting point for you is to humble yourself before God in simple childlike faith. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to take you and to make you the man or the woman he wants you to be, to begin changing you as you learn to walk with him. Father, may we be willing to take as seriously these matters as we see them expressed here in the pages of your word. We see the, the intensity of the expressions used by Peter, the passion that comes through these words. May that light our fire. May it, it spur us. May it prompt us so that we would have the same attitude and perspective toward our walk with Christ as is expressed in these pages. And in closing, Father, we pray for anyone here among us who has no relationship to you or to your son, Jesus Christ, and needs to begin there at that point. May your Holy Spirit use something from our gathering this morning to draw that man or woman or young person, whoever it is, to genuine faith in Jesus Christ, to a relationship with him, in whose name we pray. Amen.